welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people. The whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. And as we begin a series of sermons taken from the letters and writings of Paul, as we have heard his origin story as a follower of Jesus just now from Acts chapter 9, give us your Holy Spirit to truly illumine your word to us. Thank you, O Jesus, that you are crucified and resurrected. And the same Christ that appeared to Saul all of those years ago is still alive and by the Holy Spirit, likewise this morning, calls us by name. Would we come? Would we follow? Would we be changed? Would we be given joy? Would we know the graciousness of grace? Do a good work now, we pray, O Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. You can be seated. So like I mentioned in the prayer a moment ago, we're beginning here at Liberty Collingswood a summer sermon series on selected passages from the letters of Paul. It's not just going to be one letter or one chunk of a letter. We're going to be picking and choosing, and there's going to be a variety of preachers coming and speaking this summer. I won't be preaching every Sunday. Instead, I'll be taking those work weeks to work on some longer-term projects, and because we're picking and choosing Throughout the letters of Paul, the title for this sermon series, there are some people that really love this title, Paul Perry. (laughs) It was good for me. So it is going to be Paul Perry this summer. And yeah, so that's what we're doing. What do you think, if you know a little bit about the Apostle Paul, what do you think about that guy? And realistically, mileage will vary when it comes to Paul. Different sorts of perspectives. It's okay if you don't know a whole lot about Paul. That's why we're here this morning and we'll be here throughout the summer talking about the apostle. But there's a spectrum. So there are some church traditions and some churches where it can seem like the only part of the Bible that we have is the letters of Paul, the Pauline corpus of writings. That's all there is. Hey, what's your pastor preaching about right now? 
Paul. Hey, what are you doing in your small group Bible study right now? What are you studying? Paul. Hey, what's the face iced on to that cake in the fellowship, Paul? Well, that's Larry, but we made him look like Paul because we're just totally into Paul. So there's sort of that end of the spectrum. But then on the other hand, whether from inside of the church or outside of the church, Paul does get some mixed reactions. Have you heard the sentiment before? Maybe this is something that you've struggled with at different times. I love Jesus, but I'm not so sure about the church. Maybe Paul is working into that not so sure about church part. Not so sure. Or you might have heard or you might feel yourself, you know, if the church would only focus on the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the ethics of Jesus, then the church would not be in the messes that it is. And Paul realistically might be a culprit. And the line of thinking goes this way. Do you know what Paul adds to the church? Dogma. Lots of teachings. Lots of prescriptions that at best simply weigh down and bog the church down. Paul weighs us. Or worse, and the worse is that some of the most controversial parts of the scriptures, and we need to interpret these well, come from the Apostle Paul. So sexuality and sexual ethics, or gender, or depending on where you sit on the political spectrum, you can build a robust case for racial reconciliation and justice from the letters of Paul. And Paul has some very pointed things to say to people that have a lot of money and are not being generous with it. So Paul is an equal opportunity offender depending on where you sit on some of these things. It's Paul that gets into stuff like this. But whether Paul is your favorite part of the Bible or least favorite part of the Bible or somewhere in between, it's the case that next to Jesus, Paul is probably the most important figure in Christianity. Jesus, hear me. Let's have, I was going to say, let's have Jesus on the cake and not Paul. We, we actually don't need Jesus' cakes either. But Jesus is a central figure. Paul might be number two. We need to reckon with this figure from the New Testament. But if Paul can say some hard things, the flip side is also true when some of the greatest and most beautiful statements of human contentment in the history of the ancient Near East, they come from the Apostle Paul. So some verses that we'll return to later in the sermon, it's the Apostle Paul who wrote to Timothy, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. For me as a pastor, for me as a person, I read a verse like that. I have fought the fight. I have run the race. That's where I would love to end up. And what if we would grow in this direction? And so three parts here for the rest of the sermon. Paul as person as we begin our, as we begin our sermon series. Paul Perry, I'll be sure to say Paul Perry as often and as frequently and with as much gusto as I can. So Paul Perry, Paul is person here this morning, three parts, Paul's beginning, Paul's burden, 
and Paul's end. So Paul's beginning, I read a couple of moments ago from, from Acts chapter 9, this famous story of the conversion of first Saul, and then Saul became Paul. He was later renamed not too long after this passage in Acts chapter 9. So at first, Paul, or Saul, was a Roman officer who was persecuting the very, very early church, this early movement of followers of Jesus. Paul was one of the main villains. But then on that Damascus road so many years ago, Jesus appeared to Paul. We pick up in verse 4 once again. And falling to the ground, Paul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. And just later on, Jesus tells another follower of Jesus, I will show Paul how he must suffer for my name. And so when the number one villain became a good guy, if you keep reading the book of Acts, which is the account of the first Christians, they were freaking out a little bit. Like, wait a second, is this a trick? Are we all of a sudden going to say, Saul, Paul, you're on our team now, that's great. Or are we letting a fox into the chicken coop? Like we talked about last week from the end of our Elijah sermon series, Elisha was all in and so was Paul. But if you think about it, the Apostle Paul in God's providence was the perfect person to carry the message of Jesus forward and throughout the ancient world. Earlier on in the book of Acts, Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses to the first apostles in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here by the end of the book of Acts, we have the apostle Paul symbolically getting to the ends of the earth, the known world in that context, all the way to Rome, the heart and the seat of the Roman Empire, all of the power in that part of the world, Paul is now there. And so he was a Jewish person, not somebody that grew up in Jerusalem. He was a Jewish person, also fluent in Greek culture, growing up in the Greek town of Tarsus. He says in the book of Philippians that he was a Pharisee, so knew a ton about the Jewish world and the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament but then also is not only a Roman officer, not all Roman soldiers, not all Roman officers were also Roman citizens. Paul was. So Paul loved Jesus, knew the Hebrew scriptures, and was worldly in the best sense of the world, was and did travel widely. And Paul is so valuable for the Christian story. And cards on the table, I like Paul. I think he's really great and we have a lot to learn from him. He is a figure to be wrestled with, and one of the great things about Paul, in my opinion, is that he is one of the conduits that confirms to us the truth of the Christian story. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to remind you again that all of this stuff is real. There's an empty tomb. Jesus is resurrected. If you're somebody who's tuning in with us here this morning or in the room and you're not sure where you are with Jesus, the good news is that all of this stuff is real. And there is a real Jesus, crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. That story is true. But if it's the case that not only recently, but for the past few hundred years, there's been scholarly debate, sometimes nicely scholarly, sometimes a little sensationalistic in my opinion, about the quest for the historical Jesus. Yeah, there was some figure 2,000 years ago, this Jesus of Nazareth, he may have lived, he may not, but can we have any sort of confidence 
that Jesus said what the New Testament said that he said and did what the New Testament said that he did. And don't get me wrong, I feel very solidly that we can trust these accounts of Jesus in the Gospels. But by contrast, if there is a lot of scholarly energy trying to get to the bottom and different opinions vis-a-vis the quest for the historical Jesus, by contrast, there has been no quest, by and large, for the historical Paul. So highly committed Christian scholars all the way to people that are really skeptical about Christianity, there is widespread agreement that, yeah, Paul happened and that this is real. There was a historical figure, Paul, and there's broad consensus, not all of the Pauline letters, but even skeptical scholars will say the majority of the Pauline letters that we have in the New Testament came from this person, Paul, all by the same hand, and in more recent times, Hashtag analytics, it's not just for being mad at Ben Simmons right now. You can also do stuff like linguistic analysis of ancient writings, or even for you. If you are given a sample of, hey, could you just write a lot and we'll look at your letters, we'll look at your texts, we promise not to be embarrassing about it. But we can verify, based on the words that you use, your vocabulary, the syntax that you use or don't use. Forensics does this in criminal cases. Did this one person write all of this stuff, yes or no? And there's a high degree of confidence in the case of Paul. There is one figure that wrote all of these letters. So we can have confidence that at least for Paul's part, he existed and believed what he believed and wrote what he wrote. That's actually really important, and it's not a coincidence, too, that most of the New Testament, more than from any other writer, it is the writings of Paul that carry the New Testament. The majority of the writings come from Paul and not from any author. Those are things to weigh. And I think of my dad. Maybe you've heard this before. My dad just had his 84th birthday a couple of weeks ago. Pops is still going strong. He runs every day. And I'm only barely faster than he is, even though he has about 40 years on me. One of the things that my dad has told me over the years about why he's a follower of Jesus, he says, Paul, how do you account for this figure? You can't make this stuff up. And don't just take the word of an anger, but there are plenty of people, including the founder of my seminary, Westminster Seminary, who close to 100 years ago wrote a book called The Origin of Paul's Religion. And the argument there, and as far as I know, the argument hasn't been responded to adequately, hey, if Jesus isn't accurately taught in the New Testament, we have no idea what to do with Paul because we have so much evidence and so much data about this figure. And if he was a fraud, he would have been exposed. There were the resources of empire in the first century, first from ancient Judaism and then even more from ancient Rome, devoted to disproving the Christian religion. Paul was never. And if he was faking it, maybe it was indigestion after all that I saw on that Damascus road based on all of the sufferings that Paul went through later on. Surely he would have faded and said, hey, It would actually be easier for me just to come clean and say, I made that stuff up, or I was fooled at the time. This isn't real. So we weigh this figure incredibly important and valuable from the perspective of the truth of the Christian story, but then also theologically. 
Paul is a missionary and also a theologian. And one of the things that I love about reading Paul is that he is in the context of ministry and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, trying to put pieces together. And it's breathtaking. I love as well, and I've read Paul for, I'm not a Pauline scholar, but sort of like if you read the Psalms enough, you can actually begin to recognize over a period of time. And sometimes this happens. Somebody quotes to me a verse from the Psalms and I'll say, hey, is that a Psalm of David? I don't remember for sure, but that sure sounds like a Psalm of David. You can likewise learn Pauline cadences over time. And some of his later letters are more complex theologically than the earlier letters as he keeps going back to the Jewish scriptures and saying, I get it. I see it. This is where God was driving the whole time. And like any good Jewish Pharisee of the period, Paul believed that the world had been created good and that human beings had been placed on this earth to tend to creation well under God, to rule graciously before creation and with each other. But we rebelled. But God didn't run away from us and through the nation of Israel kept a vital connection to his creation so that Israel would know and be a showcase people of the goodness and grace and justice of our good living God and that through Israel all the nations of the world would be blessed all the way to the last day when there would be a new heavens and a new earth and a resurrection of the people of God into that new heavens and new earth. The surprise was that the resurrection began with God's Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, strangely. But if you go back into the Hebrew scriptures, you see that it was going in this direction, crucified, resurrected, not at the end of time, and in the middle. So that throughout the world, as a story, this message goes forward, men and women, boys and girls, removed from Jesus geographically and historically, still would say, this Jesus is real to me. And as we confess every Sunday, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead. It's Paul, more than any other, that was putting these theological pieces together. And it's Paul that knew so many contexts, was well-versed, like I said earlier, in Judaism and Jewish contexts. And if you go through his sermons in the book of Acts, you can see Paul making contextual choices as he speaks to Jews in Jerusalem, but then also as he speaks to Jewish people that are less educated, but then as he speaks to Greeks that are pagan and don't really know anything and about some things, but then they, they know the Greek gods and the Greek goddesses. Paul speaks to them. Then he goes to Athens, highly educated. We don't believe in those old myths anymore, gods and goddesses. We are modern philosophical people. Paul speaks to them. He is so well-versed in all of these contexts and speaks well and wisely into them. And we can see in Paul's letters as well his wrestling with the question, Jesus is doing a new thing and creating a new people. What makes Christians distinct? How can and should Christians be weird on one hand, but then love and serve everybody on the other hand? What is distinctive about this Christian movement? The Roman Empire didn't know what to do with them. They don't look like a philosophy. They don't look like a religion, but they seem to be doing religious things, but they have no temple and no unified tongue. One more time going into the book of Acts, the term Christians is coined in Antioch because you have this pan-national, multi-ethnic group where one existing descriptor can't capture this wide menagerie of people but all unified in Jesus. What do we call this bunch? Well, let's call them Christians because we have nothing else. 
And it's Paul who is wrestling with these things throughout his ministry and throughout his writings. So if that's Paul's beginning, we can talk as well about Paul's burden. Paul's life was hard. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul has to defend his ministry to the church there because they're saying, should we really listen to Paul? There are some other people that we kind of like better. They're better speakers. They're more compelling. They're less boring. They're more exciting. Let's go in these directions instead. And so Paul writes a passage like this from 2 Corinthians 11. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelite? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. And he goes on this laundry list. Hear Paul. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on, my, on me of my anxiety for all of the churches." Jesus is telling the the church at Corinth, this stuff is really important to me. Jesus is really important to me, and I have earned your ear. Jesus' burden is for Jesus and the mission of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and the building up of the church. I love how at the end of this passage, a lot of physical things have happened to me, but you know what else hurts? You know what a pressure I feel? There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. What does somebody have to do to earn your ear? To say, hey, I'll really listen to this right now. It's somebody who suffered a lot for whatever that thing is and is all in. So is Paul. And so is the call to us. And so this summer, Paul Puri. My prayer is that we would be pushed by Paul. How can we raise the bar to have a larger, more dramatic, more full-bodied vision of Christian discipleship to follow this Jesus? If you're still weighing Christian truth to see a vista of, wow, following Jesus is really hard, but it is really good. In previous summers, periodically, we've done popcorn from the Psalms, psalm if you will. And my goal for those summers was that the Psalms, long drinks of iced tea, refreshing for the summertime. My prayer this year is that we'd be pushed by Paul and the scriptures. And look, even Peter in his second letter towards the end, and I always chuckle when I read this, I went back to it this morning. Peter says, oh yeah, you know the writings of Paul? His letters are really hard to understand. But we should listen to them because people try to twist them around. And then this is the kicker for me, as they do the other scriptures. So even within this period, Paul's letters are being treated as the word of God for us to follow, for us to be moved. And I love how this Jesus is sold out, how this Paul is sold out for this Jesus. One point to the Corinthian church, he says, 
what I received as of first importance I delivered unto you. Paul, what's it all about? That the Christ died in accordance with the scriptures and was buried and rose again in accordance with the scriptures. What about Paul's end? So I've, I've planted two churches in my life so far, and over the past couple of years, I've been asked, hey, Jim, do you think you have number three in you? Do you think you'd want to plant a third church? And I've said, no. <laughs> been there, done that. I'm, I'm like Murtaugh and Lethal Weapon. I'm getting too old for this. No, two is good. That's a good number. Noah's Arky Arky. They're two by two. That's, the, that's what I've done. But in God's providence, and no, the world is not all about me, I think God is leading me to plant a third by necessity. And it's this one. As we embrace post-pandemic realities in life here in the West, we have a relaunch. We have a replant. And when I think about that, I take some deep breaths and say, God, I did not ask for this. But I look to Paul, including in a passage, and this is the last passage that I'll read, written towards the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What would you say is Paul's tone there? Well, on one hand, when I hear Paul saying those words, I hear exhaustion, and I hear scars. And I can relate to those things, not nearly to the extent to Paul, but I get it. But then I also hear some satisfaction and some relief, and some contentment. Yeah, I've been doing this, and it has been worth it. And Paul goes on to say, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I keep in mind when I read a passage like that, where Paul says, Jesus is going to give me a crown unto all of God's children in Christ. And I'm going to see him again. When Paul says that, how could he not have in his mind and remember, I'm not saying I'm going to see him. I'm going to see him again. So with the Paul face on the cake, we have no idea what Paul looked like. But Paul did, because Jesus appeared to Paul all of those years ago. So when Paul says, I'm going to receive a crown from this Lord, this Jesus, there's a face on that. I'm going to see my Jesus again. And so in the meantime, I can feel from Paul, I'll keep doing this. I'll keep pouring out my life as a drink offering because it's worth it. And so can we. And so can we. One of the upshots of COVID is we continue to unpack all of the feelings and the trauma of this period. One of the upshots is that life is short. Life is short. And for you or for me, what sort of bar would there be for us to be able to say, if I clear that, then that's a life that's worth it. Paul says, let it be this one. Not just for Christian ministers, but for Christian followers. Let it be this bar 
as Jesus will appear at the end of time as judge of the world, as we confess that in the Apostles' Creed, but knowing that because this Jesus is crucified and resurrected, he was judged in our place, and crowns of righteousness are given to the children of Jesus because this Jesus wore a crown of thorns. And so we press in. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later. Thank you.